Good morning, church family. If you would take your copy of God's Word and open with me to Luke chapter number 9. Luke chapter number 9, as we continue to worship now through the preaching of God's Word, as we have been able to worship now through the public reading of God's Word and prayer and through the singing of the gospel, now we turn to the Word once again in Luke chapter 9. We're going to read this morning from verses 18 through 22. Our focus will be verses 21 and 22, but for the sake of context, picking up in last week's passage, let's begin to read in verse 18. You follow with me as I read aloud. This is the word of the living God, and it reads as follows. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah and others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And this morning I am preaching on this subject, the prophecy regarding the mission of Christ. And you may be seated if you would now join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, now as we continue to worship through your word, we pray that you would strengthen us, encourage us, and help us to apply this very text to our own present-day context. We thank you again for the truth of the gospel, and we thank you again for this passage. We ask that you would build up our faith and save unbelievers who might be in this very room today under the preaching of the gospel of King Jesus. Now, we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Back in this context, as we saw last week, as we read this passage and preached on this passage, we saw that there were many people who were very much confused as to who Jesus actually was. And so it is that Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And then they gave the word on the street. You remember, they gave the gossip of the marketplace. They provided the commentary of the common landscape, if you will, of that present day situation. And we saw that, again, this text gives us the record just as well as when Herod asked his people the very same question and the same results came back. Well, some say that you're Elijah or one of the prophets of old risen from the dead. Some say that you're John the Baptist raised from the dead. But then last week we saw that that Jesus did something unique. He did something that Herod did not do when Herod asked the question to his followers or his people. Jesus stopped and said, but who do you say that I am? And it was a very pointed question. And then the spokesman for the apostles, Peter, speaks up and says, you are the Christ of God. Now, this is an extremely important passage because it sets for us really in many ways the climax to all of our study of Luke's gospel to this very point. And it provides us that very crucial answer to that very crucial question, which is, who is Jesus? 
Now keep in mind, the apostles had been with Jesus. They had seen His miracles and signs and wonders. They had heard His preaching. And so uh, at this point, they're building and building and building knowledge and, and more knowledge and more knowledge about who Jesus actually is. And now they've come to this conclusion that Jesus actually is the Christ of God. Now, this is an extremely important point because at this point, you would think that Jesus would say, okay, now, good job, you've got it. Now, let's go and preach this far and wide to the end of the world. But he doesn't do that, does he? In fact, what we see is something unique, and we see that in verse number 21. He says, he charged them to tell this to no one. And then he goes on and provides a very powerful prophecy. Now again, we've talked about this earlier in our study through the gospel according to Luke. This is Jesus demonstrating once again his authority as the sovereign Savior who is not just a rabbi, he's not just a a powerful teacher, he's not just a powerful prophet, he is indeed very God of very God. And so he understands that there is a schedule that is at play. He could not be crucified until the very point in which he was planned to be crucified as the Lamb of God on Passover, at Passover, in the very year of Passover that was set in motion and determined before the foundations of this earth were laid. And so, sometimes you will see this idea of of concealing something that you would think we would want to preach far and wide. This is because Jesus is managing the calendar in a very specific fashion as the sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords. But as we think about this passage and we think about this question, it would serve us well to just consider that today our culture is very much confused with who Jesus is as well. And we see this in the world of politics. You see, just this past week, there was a debate where you had these Republican candidates for president starting off and kicking off a year-long campaign for who will be running for the office of president of the United States of America. They were on center stage, and many of them referenced things related to religion and referenced things related to Uh, what we would consider to be very important in a cultural situation, such as abortion and things of that nature. And yet, you see, sometimes people will claim to be a Christian, claim to be a follower of Christ, but say, well, you can kill certain babies so long as they're not really old, like, you know, no more than, say, 16 weeks, and and that sort of talk. You saw it on, on display last week, and you hear of politicians that will talk just like that in the realm of politics, in the realm of the secular university, in corporate America, and even within evangelicalism, you see really shallow definitions of who Jesus actually is. Is he this sappy, happy Jesus? Is he this grandfather sort of figure that's up there just wanting to bestow blessings upon humanity? Is he an ecumenical rabbi just walking about doing social justice deeds for people in in the community? Is that who Jesus is? Is he the community-centered Jesus? And it's obvious that that's not who Jesus actually is. But as I stated last week, I want to repeat once again this week. 
your view of Jesus actually matters. And, and how you answer this question actually matters. If your view of Jesus is the, is the sappy, happy, little bumper sticker view of Jesus, then you are woefully ignorant of who Jesus actually is. Jesus has put himself, God has put himself on display for us. The Spirit of God has put on display for us who Jesus actually is in the pages of Scripture. And this greatly impacts how we worship on the Lord's Day. It greatly impacts how we pray on Saturday night. It impacts how we live life Monday through Saturday. It impacts much about the normal daily affairs of life and the worship of the church. And so we need to take this seriously. We look at verses 21 and 22, and we see a couple of things here in this passage, and I want us to unpack it for the next few minutes together. The first thing we see is that Jesus fulfills prophecy, followed up by Jesus delivering a powerful prophecy. He fulfills prophecy because notice what verse 22 says. He charged his disciples, his apostles, to tell no one about the fact that he is indeed the Christ. And then he says, quote, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This title, Son of Man, comes from Daniel 7.13 from the night visions that were given to the prophet Daniel. This title, Son of Man, appears a, a multitude of times in the Old Testament, and then it appears about 80 times or so in the Gospels as it is applied to Jesus. And not just applied to Jesus, but Jesus claiming the title for himself. And in this very text, as he delivers a prophecy, he calls, basically calls himself the Son of Man. And as he does this, what he is demonstrating is that the night visions that were given to the prophet Daniel and all of these prophetic utterances of the Old Testament related to the Son of Man is that Jesus is saying, I am the one that was prophesied of back in the Old Testament. I am this Son of Man figure. I am standing here before you as Daniel's Son of Man. This is an extremely important statement. Not only is it an important statement, but it's also an important title because the Son of Man involves Jesus' humiliation. You see, this title demonstrates that the Son of God would become the Son of Man and that He would be humiliated. As the Son of God took upon Himself human flesh, He was born not into a royal palace. He was instead born into human poverty. He was born into a stable. And then he lived a life that was not full of riches and glamour and prestige from a human vantage point. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, notice what it says, And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests. But, notice the title, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You see what he's saying there? The foxes can dig holes, which is a common thing, and, and they have a place of their dwelling. 
birds of the air can gather all sorts of thorns and straw, and they can build themselves a nest. But the Son of Man, the Son of God who became the Son of Man, the Christ, doesn't even have a place to lay his head. The point is, is that it was a demonstration of his humility, that the Son of God had taken upon himself human flesh and had come into this sin-cursed world and was not walking about in, in riches and glamour and prestige, but instead had been humiliated in that sense. There would be additional humiliation that would come, as we're going to talk about in just a few moments. But this beginning of this prophecy, that the Son of Man must be rejected by the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, and that he must be killed, and that on the third day raised, starts off with a fulfillment of the Son of Man prophecies of the Old Testament. Second of all, we see that Jesus delivers a prophecy. He delivers this prophecy. If you'll notice what it says, it talks about the fact that he would be what? He would be rejected. Now, the interesting thing about this is not only his rejection and and all of this, but also, again, his resurrection. This is, again, the first of three times in Luke's gospel that we see Jesus prophesying, personally prophesying of his own death, burial, and resurrection. This is extremely important because what's on display for us here is that Jesus is giving a prophecy of his saving mission. He is not talking about some hope-so sort of event. He is talking, he is declaring a prophecy that would actually accomplish something. He's prophesying of his saving mission, which involves his own resurrection. Now, the interesting thing is, is that people oftentimes get this wrong. They they talk about Jesus' death and they talk about his resurrection in a hope-so vein. It's not a hope-so. When Jesus came and he took upon himself human flesh. In the incarnation, when Jesus was born as being truly God and truly man at the very same time, listen, it was not a hope-so mission. It wasn't. This past weekend, I ventured out with my family to go to the rodeo over in Villarica, and it was, as promised, always a, a, a comical event in many ways. And as we went, I I told my children, I said, you know, I said, what you're going to hear this evening is you're going to hear the rodeo announcer, and he's going to start off the rodeo in the typical fashion of all rodeos I've ever been to. Um, I would like to go to a Texas rodeo one day. Maybe it'll be different. But the ones all around here start off with some sappy sort of statement about Jesus, and then is followed up by some sort of a statement about America and all cowboys go to heaven when they die and then talks about something about, you know, Jesus and, and all sorts of things. And so I warned them that that would happen. We got there and sure enough, uh, the rodeo announcer talked about, he quoted from Genesis and he identified the cowboy and the horse and he talked about this, this connection that the cowboy and the horse has and Then he went on to talk about the importance of the freedom, and by this time the cowboy's riding around the arena with uh, uh, an American flag, and he talks about the importance of us having the freedom to be able to pray, and so then he was going to ask us to pray, and then he asked us to pray to the God of our choosing. 
And then he went on to pray in Jesus' name. And then he said this about Jesus. Dear Lord, thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross to give us a second chance. To which all of the cowboys and cowgirls said a hearty amen. That is not why Jesus came. Jesus did not come to die to give you or you or you or you or you or anyone watching on this live stream a second chance to save yourself. Jesus came on a saving mission. And this is what the angel said to Joseph when he was confused and did not understand why it was that Mary was with child. She will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus so that he can die to give you a second chance. Is that what the angel said to Joseph? Some of you are not very sure if that's what the angel said to Joseph. That is not what the angel said to Joseph. The angel said this, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall, he will save his people from their sins. You see, that's why Jesus came. Jesus came on a saving mission, and this prophecy is a declaration of that saving mission, that he would come, that he would be rejected, that he would be killed, that he would be resurrected from the dead. So it is that later on, as the Apostle Paul is sent out as an apostle to preach, he writes a letter to the church in the city of Corinth. And in the 15th chapter, he starts off that chapter that's dealing with the doctrine of resurrection. And he says, For I deliver unto you, first of all, that which I also receive, how that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, was buried, and was raised again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That is a summary statement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is a saving mission. And this is what he's declaring as he gives this prophecy. The Son of Man would come on this saving mission. Let's look first of all at this prophecy and let us see the following things. First of all, the suffering of Christ. The Son of Man must suffer many things. All throughout the Old Testament, we see that the plan of God was for the Son of Man to suffer many things. We see this in Isaiah chapter 53, that that the Son of Man, that Jesus is called the suffering servant. He is described, if you will, as the suffering servant of God. In Isaiah chapter 50, in verse number 6, his back would be whipped or striped. His beard would be ripped from his face and his face would be spit upon. In Isaiah 53.10, it pleased the Lord to crush him. Zechariah chapter 13 verse 7 says that they would strike the good shepherd. In Psalm 22.16, it speaks of dogs and evildoers who would pierce the hands and the feet of the Son of God. We see in Psalm 34 verse 20, it, he is, it predicts, it prophesies that, that none of Jesus' bones would be broken. In Psalm twenty two eighteen, it says that his garments will be parted by casting of lots. In Psalm 69, 21, it says that he'll be given vinegar to drink. 
In Psalm 22, 1, he would cry out in pain and distress. In Psalm 22, 31, he would cry the victory cry of it is finished. And Zechariah 12, 10 says that they would pierce him with a spear. And that's exactly what they did. But here, Jesus himself predicts that he would suffer many things. And then he talks about his rejection. He would be rejected. Rejected. This word is an interesting word. In fact, it's a technical term that has in mind the idea of careful scrutiny and yet to be then rejected after examination. That's what the word means. And so it is. It's yet talking about not only the the fact that Jesus, according to John chapter 1 verse 11, came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but more importantly, when he would stand trial before the Sanhedrin and the religious leaders of the Jewish people, and they would look at him And they would look him up and down. They would examine his preaching. They would examine all of of his ministry up to that point. And then they would wholeheartedly reject him as their Messiah. They would call instead, they would call him a blasphemer. The Sanhedrin rejected him. So he was not only rejected, but suffering many things, he would be flogged. John 19 verse 1 says, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And why did he do this? Well, this was a common practice of, of whipping and torturing people who would be crucified. But even more so, Pilate was hoping that he would satisfy the crowds as they were crying and calling for his crucifixion. Pilate said he didn't see any fault in him. And so he would have him flogged. Flogged. Isaiah 53, 5 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. They would take this instrument that was a whip, and it would be uh, designed in such a way with long leather Strips, and at the end of these leather strips would be pieces of bone and fragments of glass. And these Roman soldiers, they would tie someone to a whipping post by their hands so that they could not run, so that they could not hide, and their back would be completely exposed before the soldier. And he would take this instrument, this whip, and he would begin to stripe the backside of the individual. And it would tear through the backside. It would tear through the flesh. It would expose even bones. And that's exactly what happened here as Jesus was whipped. The Bible does not specify how many stripes Jesus received, but Deuteronomy 25.3 states that a criminal could not receive more than 40 lashes. And so it is that when the Apostle Paul was whipped he experienced 39 lashes, 40 save one. That's what the text says. And Jesus experienced this. He was whipped and he was lashed. He was striped. But he was also spit upon and his beard ripped from his face. Matthew 26 verses 67 through 68 says, 
Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? So you can imagine the scene. Beard being ripped from his face. Isaiah 50, verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. It was a common thing for those who were condemned to death by crucifixion to have their beards ripped from their faces. This is what Jesus experienced. And then they mocked him. John 19, verses 1 through 3, it says, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head uh, and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. You can imagine the mockery as Jesus was there in Pilate's judgment hall, condemned and then striped and whipped and slapped and spit upon and his beard ripped from his face and blood flowing down and then plaited there and crowned with a a crown of, of thorns that would mash into the brow and into the scalp and into the skin. The pain that he was experiencing and the mockery. Hail, King of the Jews, putting on him a purple robe because purple being the color of royalty openly mocking the Son of the living God. He would be ridiculed when he was sent before Herod in Luke 23, 11, It says, And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. Why do you think, by the way, that Herod and his soldiers mocked Jesus? Interestingly enough, if you go back and study, what you find is that Herod was very much fearful of this figure. He thought that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead, which would have been his ultimate nightmare. But when he saw that he had temporal authority over Jesus, he mocked him with his soldiers and dressed him in splendid clothing and then sent him back to Pilate, almost as to say, I'm not afraid of you anymore. The crowds and even Pilate would engage in this very same ridicule. In Luke 23, verses 20 through 25, it says Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time, he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him, but they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. Now notice what happens here in verse 24. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Barabbas was released, guilty of insurrection and murder. The crowds wanted a murderer and someone guilty of insurrection to be released, but for Jesus to be 
crucified. When Jesus would be finally crucified, as people are passing by, according to Matthew 27, verses 38 through 40, then two robbers were crucified with him. By the way, that's a shameful thing. One on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. That's what Jesus experienced. That's the suffering of many things. The suffering of shameful statements by the tongue of man. The suffering of painful abuse by the hands of men. All of this. The suffering Son of man. But he also predicts not only that he would suffer many things and that he would be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, but we see next that he's going to be killed. Notice the death of Christ. This is a prophecy about his death. Jesus did not die of old age, Jesus did not die of some cancer or diabetes, he died by killing, specifically by murder. It says that he would be killed after he was whipped and after he was abused and after he was rejected and after he was given over for crucifixion, he would be led to the place of execution, which was the place called Golgotha. It was the the hill of death. It was the place of a skull. It was a shameful place to die. To be executed there would to be uh, executed as, as the worst criminal of society. And that's where Jesus was led to die. Golgotha was not a place of obscurity. It was outside of the, the gates of the city. It was a place of rejection, but it was on a common thoroughfare. It was a place that could be seen by people as they passed by. That's exactly what happened. Listen to Hebrews 13, verses 11 and 12. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Even his death was symbolic of the fact that he was indeed the Lamb of God. They would take the carcasses and burn them outside the gate, all of those animals that would be used for sacrificial offerings. And so Jesus also suffered outside the gate. What is this? This is a statement of his rejection, even in his death. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Notice this, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You see, Jesus experienced this, and this was his death. It wasn't death by old age. It wasn't death by some disease. It wasn't death by by suffering because of some sort of physical infirmity that would then be given some sort of medicine to help dull the pain. No, it was a painful execution. It was a shameful death on the hill of the skull. This is why we sing the hymn by Philip Bliss, Man of Sorrows, What a Name. 
for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Lifted up was He to die. It is finished was His cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah. What a Savior. When He was led to the place of the skull, Golgotha, He would be crucified there. Crucifixion involved this being attached to this tree, to be attached to this cross. Now, crucifixion is known because of the Roman crucifixion, but it was not invented by the Romans. It was invented by the Persians, but it was practiced and perfected by the Romans. By the time of Jesus' death, some 30,000 people had been crucified by the Romans. They had perfected the art of it. It was considered to be, crucifixion was, it was considered to be this cross of the infamous stake. And so it would be that the Christ, the Son of Man, would come and He would be nailed to this cross. He would be nailed to this cross. He would be crucified there, rejected by men, rejected by the Jews. And yet Isaac Watts states in his wonderful hymn, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Why do you think that the great hymn writer Watts could call the cross this infamous stake, this brutal crucifixion tree, the wondrous cross? Because of what happened on that cross. He experienced physical pain. Now in our day, we, we take the cross and we make pulpits in the shape of a cross. Or we might make jewelry and fashion jewelry in the shape of a cross. And yet, the cross in this day, in this time period, was a symbol of great pain and rejection and guilt and condemnation. In our day, the cross isn't so shameful. But in Jesus' day, the cross was a criminal's execution symbol. And he experienced the highest pain. As he's there nailed through his flesh into this wood so that he could not pull himself away, attached to this tree, he's experiencing pain at every movement. He would have to push himself up to to just gasp another breath. And yet, every time he would push up with his feet, he would experience the pain. He would experience the pain from his joints and his body stretched out. No pain medicine to dull the intensity. His heart would be beating and his blood would be flowing and blood flowing into his eyes and his hands could not could not be released to wipe the blood, blurred vision. All of this was a horrific scene. He experienced the emotional pain, as we've already said, mocked by the Jewish people, mocked by the Jewish leaders, mocked by the criminals, mocked by those who were coming by, derided by them, reviled by them. As he looked to his right, he saw a criminal. As he looked to his left, he he saw a criminal. As he looked upward, 
He understood the weight and the intensity of every sin of every one of his people that he was coming to die for as he was being crushed by the wrath of God. And in his dying moments, it became midnight at midday. Darkness covered the face of the earth. This is why Watts writes in his hymn, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would He devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Watts, in a masterful way, with poetic genius, puts the emphasis of this, of this moment of Jesus' painful death of the Savior bleeding and the Sovereign One dying, that He would do all of this to die for who? For, for wonderful, upstanding people that are worthy of death? No, for such a worm as I. You see, the Son of God became the Son of Man so that He would be rejected and despised and crucified on a Roman cross he left the throne of heaven to come embrace the thorns of earth. He was worshipped around heaven's throne. The seraphim and the cherubim were crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, only to be rejected here on planet earth. The magnified Lord became the crucified Christ. And as 1 Peter 2.24 says, that He... He was crucified for us. He would bear our iniquities. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus gives this powerful prophecy to demonstrate what must happen next. And this is one of the reasons that he didn't tell his apostles to just go and spread it far and wide because they were still in the classroom. They had been learning and learning and learning and learning and learning, and now Peter says, you are the Christ. Well done, Peter, but there's more. There's a, there's a full gospel yet to be preached. And what does that involve? It involves his rejection, suffering of many things, to be killed, to be buried and to be resurrected on the third day. You see, it's not enough to just say that Jesus is the Christ because to many Jews, they, they were fine with that. The Messiah is going to come and he's going to be this triumphant, victorious one who's going to come in a political scene and he's going to release us from captivity. And they were looking for this general to come. And yet, they needed to know more. There was more to this gospel that they must grasp. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. This is what they needed to know. This is what they yet needed to learn before they would be sent out on this preaching mission that would unveil the fact that Jesus is indeed the Christ of God. You see, for Caiaphas, the death of Jesus was nothing more than, it was nothing more than a political situation. 
For Pilate, the death of Jesus was offered up to please the crowds. For the crowds, the death of Jesus merely satisfied them because they rejected him as their Messiah. But for the disciples, for these apostles, the death of Jesus would serve as the fulfillment of the hope of the nations and personally their own individual hope as Jesus would be dying for them. You see, Jesus died to save his people. Jesus did not come to give the apostles a second chance or to give all of us a second chance. He came to save. He came to redeem. He came that sins would be forgiven and hearts would be cleansed and lives would be transformed and guilt would be removed and condemnation would be lifted. Righteousness would be granted. Eternal life would be imparted. The wrath of God would be satisfied. The judgment of God fulfilled. The penalty of sin paid. And all possibility of hell abolished forever for everyone who would put their faith and trust in Jesus. For everyone that he died for. Listen to what Jerry Bridges said. It is at the cross where God's law and God's grace are both most brilliantly displayed where his justice and his mercy are both glorified. But it is also at the cross where we are most humbled. It is at the cross where we admit to God and to ourselves that there is absolutely nothing we can do to earn or merit our salvation. But he also predicted his resurrection. This is the first of three predictions that he would give to his apostles of his own resurrection. And notice what we see there. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. You see, all throughout the Old Testament, just as well as the suffering of Jesus and the death of Jesus was prophesied, so was his resurrection. In Isaiah 53 9, it says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. You see, you can go further to see if you read Isaiah chapter 53 that it speaks about Jesus overcoming death and Jesus overcoming the grave. Now this is critically important because what we must see is that Jesus was not only brutally executed on the cross, not only did he die, but he was buried and then resurrected. Now keep in mind the religion of Islam, as I stated last week, they will call Jesus a prophet. They will even go as far as to talk about Jesus' crucifixion. But knowing that they could not overcome the reality of his resurrection, they redefined his resurrection by simply stating that he was saved from the cross and raised up from the cross so as to not experience death or the bodily resurrection that actually occurred. Why is the resurrection of Jesus so important, you say? Because without the resurrection of Jesus, there is no salvation. There's none. It's not enough to just preach the cross. We must preach the cross and the resurrection. This is why after Jesus was resurrected from the dead... Listen to what happened. Matthew 28, verses 11 to 15. While they were going, behold, some of the guard 
went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. And what was that? It was the resurrection. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. This was what the religious community of the Jews did. To cover up the resurrection, paid the Roman soldiers money and said, go out and lie about it. And if this gets to the governor's ears, we'll take up for you. Just go do as we said. And they took the money and they went and they spread the lie. And even to this very day, we have lie after lie after lie after lie that's on blog site after blog site and YouTube channel after YouTube channel and social media account after social media account. Everything from the swoon theory to the fraud theory to the mistake theory to the dog theory to the vision theory to every other sort of theory that you can possibly imagine that people have made up to say that Jesus was not resurrected from the dead. But the truth of the matter is, is that he was raised from the dead. G.K. Beale has written the following, quote, Christ was wrongly accused and executed by Satan's earthly pawns, but his resurrection vindicated him in the law courts of heaven and enabled him to take away the devil's right and power as heavenly prosecutor, end quote. Jesus was vindicated at his resurrection, and he prophesied of this. Listen, no dead Savior is a Savior. A slain man in a grave is no hope to the hopeless. A crucified man from Bethlehem cannot deliver the souls from the grip of holy justice. But Jesus was bodily executed, he was bodily buried, and he was bodily resurrected on the third day. This is the miracle of all miracles, that death could not hold him, the grave could not keep him. And on the third day, Jesus Christ, the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords, rose bodily from the dead, bodily from the grave, and bodily walked out of that tomb, demonstrating that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. And so while we gather here for worship on this Lord's day, we can sing, crown him the Lord of life who triumphed o'er the grave and rose victorious in the strife for those he came to save. His glories now we sing, who died and rose on high, who died eternal life to bring and lives that death may die. I just want to ask you the question, can you sing that? Can you sing that? Now some of you look a little bit less happy after the hearing of the gospel preached this morning than you were when someone was baptized earlier. You were all clapping and happy. I'm not encouraging you to clap now as I'm preaching. But you seemed to be real happy when you saw someone going under the water, raised up, 
symbolizing their identification with Jesus who died, was buried, and resurrected on the third day. And I just want to ask you the question, can you sing that Jesus is indeed the Lord of life? Crown him the Lord of life. Can you sing that? Some of you aren't sure if you can sing that. Some of you aren't sure if you can say that wholeheartedly. And so I ask you this question. Do you see this prophecy that Jesus delivers with great specificity that he would be rejected and he was rejected, that he would suffer many things and he suffered many things, that he would be killed and he was killed, and that he would be resurrected on the third day and he was resurrected on the third day? This demonstrates that Jesus is not this cultural Jesus. He is not the sappy, happy Jesus or the social justice Jesus. He is King of kings, Lord of lords, the triumphant, victorious one, the Son of God who became the Son of Man, the Christ, the Messiah, the hope of the hopeless, the Savior of sinners, and any and all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. My question is, is that true of you? And I would urge the church this morning to turn to this prophecy and to see these words and to cling to the truth of this prophecy as it came to full fulfillment in Jesus' life and ministry and worship the King of glory. But it is possible that some of you in this room today are unable to sing that Jesus is to be crowned the Lord of life who triumphed over the grave. And I want to urge you now that if you're in this room today and you came to this service and you did not intend to be saved, but under the preaching and hearing of the gospel, you have for the very first time in your heart of hearts a desire to be reconciled to God as you see your own sin and your own shame. I want to urge you to look beyond your sin and shame and to see what you deserve because of holy justice. You deserve to be condemned. But then look beyond your own condemnation and see the one who was condemned in your place. And trust in Jesus Christ alone for the remission of your sins, for the forgiveness of your sins. Cast yourself upon the mercy of God. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Dear sinner, do not, I plead with you, do not delay. Even now, even now as this sovereign one gives you another breath in your lungs, repent, turn to Christ and be saved. What a glorious, wonderful Savior we have. Now, the the apostles got it right that Jesus was indeed the Christ, but they yet needed to learn more. And then they too would be sent out on a preaching mission. And they were so convinced that this prophecy was true because they had personally witnessed his bodily resurrection that they were willing to follow in his footsteps and to take up their own cross and to follow after him. And one by one by one, they would be executed, slaughtered, stabbed with spears, burned, boiled in large basins of boiling oil. Because of what? Because of the truth, not a myth, because of the truth of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I urge you and plead with you to worship this 
glorious Christ.